This episode is a little bit different. I'm in the hot seat. Yep, I am being interviewed by Andrea Featherstone. She is one of my coaching buds and she's been on the Here to Thrive podcast before. Her episode was actually really popular. So if you haven't listened yet, it is the one about deconstructing mindfulness. You can flick back through and save that if you haven't already. And she is from projectself.com.au. In this episode, we talk a lot about my background as a psychologist. We talk about emotional intelligence, personality, what my pet peeve is around the Myers-Briggs type indicator, values, why I love them, personal values, my kids, and my name. I just want to do a little shout out to the group program I'm going to be running in January 2018. If you've ever thought about coaching, check it out. I'm going to be doing values work in that group program and so much more. Thrive.how forward slash reboot. The theme is about reconnecting with yourself and your own knowledge and rebooting and getting some energy to move into 2018 with. So check that out. But without further ado, less talking from me in the intro, more talking from me in the episode. Here it goes. Welcome to Here to Thrive. I'm your host, Kate Snowwise. This is a podcast for people who are ready to step up and live a happier life. It's for those of us who are dedicated to understanding ourselves and getting the best that we can out of this thing called life. It's a mix of psychology and modern spiritual thought, always with a focus on practical advice so that you can take it back and apply it to your own life. I don't believe we're here to merely survive. I truly believe we're here to thrive. So let's get going. Do you call yourself Amy Kate or Kate? Because I get confused. Okay, so I call myself Kate for work. It's like... It started out as kind of like an alter ego and (laughs) I didn't want to have to explain my name being Amy Kate Snowwise because it was like legitimately painful to try and say that to even New Zealanders when I lived in New Zealand. So when I was in America and people couldn't understand me, I was like, I need to whack off one of these names. (laughs) So that's that's how that happened. So yeah, I am Kate Snowwise for work. And all of my friends in Minnesota call me Kate. And anyone I met in Texas is highly confused and doesn't know what to call me, much like you. And anyone that I have ever known in New Zealand calls me Amy Kate. Great. So I should call you Kate for the purposes of this podcast? Yes, you should. Yeah, great. Cool. (laughs) Excellent. I think this is so fun that you're interviewing me. This is awesome. I think so too. I'm very stoked. I have lots of questions to ask you, but I'm just going to start with the first most obvious question for me, which is, did you study psychology as soon as you finished school? Yes, I did study psychology as soon as I finished school, but it wasn't what I ever intended to do. So I went to the University of Canterbury in New Zealand and I was tossing up whether or not to go into public relations or communications. I was quite interested in television broadcasting at the time, which cracks me up now because I have a podcast and hate video. So (laughs) I decided to do a Bachelor of Arts in Mass Communications 
while simultaneously pursuing a law degree. So I was doing a double degree in law and a BA in communications. And I just took psychology as purely an interest paper. So what basically happened is flunked out of law, wasn't the least bit interested in it and didn't go to my classes and got my mass communications degree, but wasn't really interested in doing journalism or communications and loved psychology. So I ended up graduating in terms of my undergraduate with a BA in communications and a Bachelor of Science in psychology. So it was kind of roundabout. That's awesome. And now don't you have like a master's or some? Yeah. So then... Then I went on and I still didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself. So I was quite interested in clinical psychology, which is typically the psychology most people know about in terms of working with patients who struggle with mental illnesses. But then I wasn't really sure that was my calling. And I was really interested in stress and emotional intelligence, which I ended up actually doing my master's thesis on. And I chose business psychology because I really only had two paths in New Zealand at the time, um, which was a qualification called industrial and organizational psychology, which is now there's a lot more options, even in the, how many years ago did I graduate? Like over 10 years ago, there are a lot more options in terms of the different paths of psychology there's things like positive psychology now, but I was studying positive psychology in my industrial and organizational psychology degree. It's just, it was such a brand new field at the time. There weren't specialist qualifications like there are now. So yeah. kind of roundabout, but so yeah, I do have a master's in IO psych. And then in New Zealand, I then had to go on and do a postgraduate diploma after my master's. Actually, my master's just in general psychology but it was very specialized. So yeah, I actually have a master's in general psychology. Then I had to go on and do a specialist diploma after that in industrial organizational psychology in order to register as a psychologist in New Zealand. Oh my goodness. So you've done a lot, a lot of time. I did a lot of time at uni. Yeah, (laughs) I did. (laughs) I did put in some years because it took me a little bit longer to get those first degrees than it probably should have. (laughs) <laughs> between you and I when you flunk out of a few classes it takes you a little bit longer yeah what were you doing when you weren't turning up to law classes eh I was working in bars actually I was 18 19 and I had that kind of short-term mindset of it was more important how much money I had in my weekly paycheck than my long-term career goals so staying up till 3 a.m in the morning to be at the bar and make some money was more important than turning up to my 9 a.m law classes it's a little bit out of work with my priorities. <laughs> I feel like you've learned probably a lot about emotional intelligence working at a bar. Yeah, well, so that's what I did all through university as I worked in bars and restaurants. Mm-hmm. You, and you learned so much about people there. So when you did the master's or the whatever, the industrial thingamajig that you just said you did, mm-hmm. did you factor in emotional intelligence into that is that what you said yeah so basically my master's required me to do a one year long research project and so my topic that I chose was the relationship between emotional intelligence and stress and well-being so the well-being part is the positive psychology part and yeah I was I still am interested in emotional intelligence and have looked at it quite in depth but haven't been using it as much recently 
but yeah, I was pretty obsessed at it at about when I was doing my master's, which was about 2006, 2007. Yeah, it was fascinating. That, so tell us, what, what did you kind of discover that was new to you about emotional intelligence and stress? In super quick summary, basically my research project found that emotional intelligence did help us or does help us cope with stress better but only with people-related stress, not task or work-related stress, which totally makes mm-hmm. sense, right? You know, emotional yeah. intelligence is a people-relating phenomenon. And so, yeah, it only mediated the stress response, talking like a psychic nerd. It only had an impact on our stress outcomes or not getting stressed if it was to do with people. That does make sense. And from that, or even from what all the work you do now, what do you reckon? How do we become more emotionally intelligent? It's funny you say that because I'm like, emotional intelligence. I haven't done a lot on emotional intelligence in the last little while. It's certainly not something I use in my day-to-day work too much. So, yeah, what was the question again? What, what do the I think about is, emotional intelligence? Like, yeah, well, how do, how do we become more emotionally intelligent? Because I feel like even if you're not using the word in your, in your coaching, there's no way you can avoid emotional intelligence. I'm sure everything you do somehow improves people's emotional intelligence. It's, I don't know. It does yeah, it? for sure. No, for sure. It definitely does. And I do find, interestingly enough, because I do do executive coaching or workplace coaching, if you like, I do have a number of my clients still come to me that are corporate and talking about how to advance their careers, how to manage their people, how to move up in leadership, all of that kind of stuff. And the most interesting thing about people that come to me and talk about like workplace issues is it's always about the people. It's always about the people. I think people are the most frustrating thing when we work, right? Other people. (laughs) I was taught a very kind of strict model of emotional intelligence, which was like seven subsets of emotional intelligence. And I don't use it in that kind of rigidity in my day-to-day work, but you're right. Everything, when you're talking about emotional intelligence in a broader term, when I talk about how you influence other people, I talk a lot about influencing others. That definitely comes down to emotional intelligence. And um, how can we improve our own emotional intelligence? I think a lot of it comes down to that good old-fashioned empathy. So before you can react to another person, if you can take a moment to honestly say, how are they potentially perceiving this? What would I be thinking if I was in their shoes? But the key is you have to put that tiny little moment in between your response. You know, it's that stimulus and response Before you automatically respond to someone, you need to see, be self-aware enough to stop yourself to be able to ask that question. What is this person thinking right now? What would I potentially be seeing in this situation if I was in their shoes, not my own? I like to talk about stories and the storylines we are all running about a situation. What is that person's potential story that they are running in their head. And I know that lines up a lot with what you talk about in terms of mindfulness too, right? Everything does really, doesn't it? It's just like a, but mindfulness, I guess, is the bit where you create that ability to have the space. But in that space, that's super interesting that you have to ask, you know, what's going on for that person? Which is so like, usually we've just already punched them in the face by the time we've realized. Well, that's it, right? The response. And like you said, I 100% agree that mindfulness does help you make that gap 
but that's it. Most of us are just running around on automatic responding. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sure. Crucial, crucial to emotional intelligence is being able to step back, self-reflect, and watch your own behavior. Yeah. And so is that kind of how you teach people to do it, to ask themselves the question in their head? For sure. If it comes up in specifically like that, like I said, I, I talk a lot about like influencing and it really is so situation-based, you know, how you influence appropriately. And that doesn't mean manipulate, but <laughs> most of us are much more successful in the workplace when we are perceptive of the emotional responses of others and react to those accordingly rather than kind of running in there like a bull in a china shop if you know what I mean so that's how I talk about influencing which is absolutely emotional intelligence as well Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and I guess a lot of the stuff you do is just around self-awareness which you can I guess you can correct me if I'm wrong you sometimes do by doing personality tests and like learning heaps about yourself, right? So you can understand the ways in which you react in certain situations. Is that how you would put it? Absolutely. Like, so all of my work, that's where I start. So coming Mm -hmm. from the background in psychology, I think that we are our most powerful when we are self-aware, right? When we are aware of our own behaviors, when we are aware of our own drivers, when we know what we want, we need, when we know how we might not function at our best and we can prepare for that. So I'm everything I do is based on self-awareness first and foremost. Mm. Well, let's go into that a bit more because I love the for personality sure. stuff. You know lots about personality types and all <laughs> kinds of things. Yeah, so um, that's the type of psychology in terms of when people kind of ask like clinical psychology and the type of psychology I did. With the more corporate stuff, I did tons of personality type stuff and intelligence testing and that kind of thing. Okay. So I don't understand personality testing very much. So maybe you can give me like a bit of an overview. Like are there certain tools you prefer or is it just all personality tools? So it's a really good question. And there are a ton of personality tools out there, like so many, and people just have no idea. And some of them are absolute rubbish. Some of them are no better than a random quiz that some person just whack together, you know, that are not scientifically grounded. And then others claim to be scientific, but if you know what you're looking at, you can see that they're still not that good. And then there are obviously the good tools, and they are ones that have been scientifically validated, which doesn't mean anything to people who don't really know, but there are a bunch of tools out there. And I am trained in one particular suite, so I can't use them all. And that's what I would say is that personality tools, the good ones, really require training to interpret adequately because it's not generally as simple as just reading a computer-generated report and completely understanding things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, many tools, not all created equal, and I specifically am trained in a certain set. And I think I've heard you say before that it's a bit of a problem with all the online tests and stuff. People can easily misconstrue it. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Basically, there are a lot of personality tools out there, like we mentioned, but Often there was literally research done, okay? So basically people were all given just a random printout about their personality. They believed it was about their personality, but it was actually random printouts. And the majority of people were like, oh, that sounded so much like me. 
And <laughs> I think that's the danger of the random computer-generated report that people aren't working through with a professional is it's just like it's potentially like picking up a random star sign, like I'm cancer but ag- accidentally reading Sagittarius and being like, wow, that's so much like me. Like If we are primed and we believe we are reading information about ourselves, we will find the truth in it. And so I think that's one of the dangers. The other one that I know we kind of talked about before we jumped on the call was most people, when they think of personality, they've heard of the Myers-Briggs type indicator or that four point, you know, INFJ or whatever type indicator, which it can be a great tool for like team building and learning about yourself. But I think that the danger is with that is that people get really super attached to their little hole that they're put in so and I've just been seeing it more and more is I think there's the the introvert is cool these days and everybody wants to be introverted and the truth is that with all of those types so if you're like an I or an E so an extrovert or an introvert we actually pretty much all of us will demonstrate both sides of that spectrum it's just that we might slightly fall one way or other. So I know for me, on any given day, I can do an assessment like that, a type indicator type assessment. And some days I fall just extroverted and other days I fall just introverted. And the majority of people kind of do fall kind of in the middle and often they don't understand that when it comes to those type indicators. So that's one of my pet peeves. I, I, I see myself as an ambivert someone who's very people oriented but energizes by myself if that makes Mm -hmm. sense so that means you can kind of move towards both sides I do know that in terms of understanding my personality and that's the thing most of us are made up of a bunch of kind of little contradictions like we're not simple you can't simply put us in one box or other and sometimes our behavior will fall in in the other spectrum if you like so like I said, in terms of my contradictions, I I love people. I am very caring, which is why I do what I do, right? That's why I was drawn to coaching. But at the same time, too much people contact and I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. So, but the majority of people would tell you that, you know, like, oh, I love people to a certain dis- to a certain degree. But then I love to go home and just have some chill time too. Most people will will agree with that statement. Yeah, and I feel like that there is such a risk of pigeonholing yourself. I feel like when when I learned that I was, I think I'm ENTP, there was part of me that was like, oh, well, I'm a thinking type. So that means I don't have to worry so much about, you know, trying to make nicey-nicey words around what I say because I'm just not like that, you know. So on one hand, it could actually make me behave worse because I'm like oh that's just my type you know that's so and true <laughs> and people kind of like use it as an excuse for their behavior and are like well that just isn't natural to me so I I can't do that and the truth is you can do it if you want to mm-hmm. and there's benefits yeah. to sometimes yeah not being so rigid in your thinking about your types mm. it's probably worse off for some personality types specifically that that actually just really want to know the the answer like the black and white like oh I'm this and, and therefore I cannot be another way. So I'm just stuck and I'll just do this every, you know, I'll do everything the same way. But then for some people, they really, are a bit, they don't like to be pigeonholed at all, I suppose. And that's it's so fascinating. And that's it. So like I, when I'm talking to my clients and I'm explaining personality and every single trait in personality, which, you know, 
introversion, extroversion, any trait. I explain it using the idea of height and the average woman, I don't actually know this. I need to Google search how tall the average woman actually is, but I'm pretty sure let's guess she's about five foot six. And if you see a woman who is five foot six, you don't notice, and sorry, her height. But if you notice a really tall woman, you're like, oh, her height is one of her defining features. She's really tall and leggy, for example. Or you might see a tiny woman and you're like, she's such a wee dot. Like, what her height becomes more of a defining feature and it's the same with personality too most of us fall kind of in the middle on most traits and the traits that we fall to the end that's where it becomes a little bit more like whoa that you know Kate's and this isn't true of me but Kate's particularly outgoing you know she's much more outgoing than most or whatever it might be that's it's when we get away from the average that it becomes more of a defining feature. But most of us on most things kind of fall in the mid-range and mm. the type indicators don't really allow for that. Right. So you have a different tool that you would normally use with your clients or a yeah, number of ones? I do. I have one that's a lot more in-depth. It can't really even be compared to the type indicator. It, I can tell you whether you're more introverted or extroverted out of it, but it goes into a lot more detail around like how you perceive information, how you make decisions. Uh, it's got 16 traits that it looks at individually and it, it's on a normative scale which is that comparison scale to the average which is not the same kind of scale that they use in a type indicator which is more comparing against yourself typically some of them are normative it all gets very confusing <laughs> it does you can kind of see why it's like leave this shit to the professionals <laughs> everyone else does the internet is not going to tell you the answer it doesn't mean that you can't still learn something about yourself from like the internet test it doesn't mean that you can't I just say just take it with a grain of salt don't just get mm -hmm. super like we talked about super rigid and pigeonholed in your thinking yeah just take it with a grain of salt yeah, 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 because it can go both ways, isn't it? Because for me, finding out I was a thinking type was actually a bit of a relief, like, oh, that's why so many females don't understand me because I don't do the nicey-nicey, and they're like, she's not nice. And I think, <laughs> oh, I've always thought, oh, there's something wrong with me, and now I realize it's like a, a trait to, to cut straight to the point and not be all empathetic and, you know, kind words around what you say. There's no bullshit. And it, so it really helped me feel like, oh, that's okay. And that and was just from an internet test. So there's but, a benefit or a, or a pullback, I guess. Absolutely. And that's where the self-awareness bit comes in. Like when we are more aware of our natural ways of just interacting with the world, it's so nice, right? You're just like, oh, this is because of this personality trait. Or I can be more forgiving of myself or more forgiving of my spouse because I know I function in a different way to them. And that is what is so awesome about personality tests. Mm. And so is that what you would say? Is that the reason why you value it in, in your work? Are there other benefits that you'd like to do it for? I find it really useful in terms of like the workplace coaching as well. It uh, helps me work out what people's natural leadership styles are and how they may be being perceived by other people. Also what their natural career interests are and what comes naturally to them in terms of the type of work they're going to be attracted to. And definitely in the way they, like I, I use the term interact with the world, like for example, on one personality trait, like I profile as not a particularly orderly person. I'm more of a big picture thinker. I can be quite unstructured in the way I approach things, but the benefit to that trait is that I can usually take a whole bunch of messy information and make something out of it. 
Whereas mm-hmm. my husband is the complete opposite on that trait. And he's a bit more of a perfectionist in terms of he likes a lot of structure and he double checks things and triple checks things. And we, that is probably the personality trait we have the most frustration in our home around because basically I'm messy and he is an neat freak. So <laughs> understanding each other's styles just makes me far more accommodating that he's not wrong. He just sees the world differently to me. And I'm still trying to convince him of the same, that he's not right, <laughs> that he just sees the world differently. But that's where it can be really awesome when you're talking in terms of personal stuff as well. It also tells me a lot about people's confidence levels, uh, whether they believe in themselves, whether they're overly harsh on themselves and that kind of stuff. So it's really awesome. Oh, interesting. And that sort of brings you back to like that initial question you said where you're just trying to understand where other people are coming from. I guess it's like another tool to be like, oh, just because my rigid opinion does not match yours does not mean it's not, you know, I'm absolutely. Right and, you're wrong. and the reason I do love using personality tools and coaching, it just fast tracks my understanding of other people. So mm-hmm. I don't have to try and work out that what that person's natural way of functioning is over multiple sessions. It's just mm-hmm. like, bam okay, I know that you are particularly hard on yourself. You are, this test told me. <laughs> yeah, and so do you adapt your coaching slightly to, to fit with that? For sure. So if someone, if I get uh, a printout from someone's personality that indicates they uh, probably lack confidence and are particularly hard on themselves, then I'm probably going to be much more supportive and not so hard-ass on them in terms of because they're already hard ass on themselves. Whereas if I get, and I have had it, you know, another personality where it kind of demonstrated that a particular client was a little bit probably cocky or arrogant, then I was much firmer and harsher because that's what he would have needed out of me as opposed to the gentle, gentle, softly, softly. So yeah, it does. Interesting. It does affect the way I coach. Do you find that when you meet people outside of work, you're like sort of semi-profiling them all the time? Oh my gosh, this is such a good question. So when I used to, you know, my job title was psychologist. So you go to an event, you're like, oh, I'm a psychologist and people stop talking to you. It's so (laughs) funny because that's everyone's immediate response is, oh my gosh, they they kind of typically think that you're psychic and that you can somehow read their mind. (laughs) And that you can perceive everything that's going through their head. So they kind of shut up. But I don't, like if I'm meeting someone, I'm very in the moment with them. I'm not like, oh my gosh, she is this, that and that. But I would be lying if I said that because I have these models and I work with this stuff every day that I just naturally do. And I don't know. I feel bad because now I make it makes it sound like I'm judging everyone, but I naturally do see people's personality types and can very quickly identify people's personality types because I've been doing it for years. Mm. And I suppose you meet a lot of similar types and you can start to see similar characteristics. Is that true? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. But that's what I would say. It's not like any of us are perfect. And I. What? <laughs> you sure? <laughs> Some days I wonder, Um, (laughs) but like it just cracks me up because people automatically get insecure about it where it's like, you want to see my personality? I'll tell you all of the quirks I have. I'd be happy to do that. You know, like nobody's perfect, even the people who know a lot about personality and the psychologists. So there you go. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's super interesting that people are like, <gasps> you must know everything about me. Seriously, <laughs> they don't want to talk to you anymore. They think, yes. and everyone's like, are you psychoanalyzing me? I'm like, ah, oh, here we go again. You're like, actually, I'm just thinking about what wine to have next. Right? That's it. You'll be out for dinner with someone and they don't know what you do and you're having the nicest conversation and then they find out that, like, you're a psychologist and they basically start getting insecure and stop talking. It's no fun. Keep it to myself. I know. And the interesting thing is if if they really realize, they realize you're probably the least judgmental person in the room because you understand different personality types versus other people who immediately put you in a box and, like, Eh, don't like that person for sure and I mean they could just as let's be honest they're judging me just as much as I'm probably judging him you know like we all have our own models of looking at people's behavior I just have titles that are related to personality in mine yeah you've got like you've got the proper labels for it all right I've noticed I've been doing it even since doing this Myers-Briggs thing I'm always like is that a thinking type a feeling trap hmm. you know and I have no training so I have no idea what I'm doing but my mind just took it and run with it we all like a little bit of structure right it helps yeah, us we navigate like the world yeah we want it we want to feel safe so we're like who are you I'm going to put you in a box so I can trust that box and that's why everyone loves the Myers-Briggs because it's like yeah. it's so simple it's like oh I can box you yay yeah yeah <laughs> oh, just, now I don't unfor- need to worry <laughs> yeah unfortunately we're just not quite as simple as it makes it sound God damn it. It would be so much easier for a control freak like me if I could just be like, oh, you're one of those types. This is how I handle you. Okay, great. We're good to go. I just like the answers. <laughs> I'm sure some people don't feel that way. It can certainly help. I wouldn't say chuck. It's not like chucking out the baby with the bathwater, Andrea. Don't don't completely chuck it out. <laughs> I won't. I've, I'm clinging on. I'm clinging on to this thinking type thing. It's changed my life. Okay. So, well, I also wanted to ask you about values. I know you're really big on values. What, like... I remember when I learned about values and I thought, oh, this is just some corporate term used for organizations to pretend that they care about stuff. But I've since learned, partly from you, they're much more important. So could you speak a bit about why, what are values and why do they matter? I have to admit, the first time I was introduced to values was in the corporate speak of like, this is, this is the organization trying to communicate what they want and what they stand for. And that's absolutely where I was first introduced to values. But it's true of people as well. They, when I use values in my work, I see it as a way for us to communicate, most importantly, to ourselves what we stand for and what matters most to us. And the reason I use values in my work and help people work through their own personal values is because most of us don't really know the answer to that in terms of language, right? We haven't dived deep enough into ourselves. And again, it comes back to that self-awareness piece to go, what matters to me in life? What do I want to create a life around? And why does it matter? So that's really what values does, in my opinion. It kind of provides us with our North Star and a little bit of structure, a little bit of scaffolding, as I like to say, to help us feel like we're moving in the right direction. Mm, That's awesome because, I mean, how many people feel like they just don't really know themselves? They're so busy working about stuff. They just think, I don't actually know what matters to me anymore. I can't tell you how many clients have said that to me. I don't know what matters. So how would you go about helping someone find their values? Do you do like a whole session or how do you do it? Yeah, I do do a whole session. And it's typically the session that people tell me they love the most because I feel like once you kind of can articulate your values, you can be really clear around these are the things I value 
it's incredibly like grounding for people to be like, oh, I finally got something to hold on to, you know, like I said, in terms of that scaffolding idea, because before I really dove into my own values, I was that person that couldn't tell you if we were sitting in round, you know, having a cup of coffee, a glass of wine, you said, what matters most to you? What do you, what do you want your life to be about? I couldn't have answered that question. I had no language for that. And so when I do my value session, that's really what it is. It's about finding the language because I think that most of us know at some level and we are acting on that in our lives generally. We are being guided by our values, but we aren't in touch with them in terms of a conscious level or able to put language around it. So my session, I basically take a whole heap of words values words and help people work through them till they find their language and that's how I do it but other values exercises I've heard often say like go back to a time when you were really happy and for someone who is trained the way I am that was just a bit fluffy for me I need a bit more structure like I'm quite a practical person so the go back and think of a time you were super happy I'm like well that doesn't really help me (laughs) So, um, yeah, I do use a lot of language and then guide people through how to make those words their own and which words appeal to them. Mm-hmm. And do you ever find that, you know, if you have a big list of values, I mean, I know when I've looked at a big list of values, I'm like, oh, all of that stuff, like I care about everything because they're all positive words, right? So you're like, oh, well, you know, you get a bit confused about what you kind of should value, like family and friendship and kindness. And then you're like, oh. Do I really? Do you ever get, do you get that where your clients are confused between too many words? Like every single time, because you're right on, like you look at those lists of values words and every word is a positive word. Like there are a few and far between that you'll be like, no, because they're all like nice to haves. And there's this thing in psychology called social desirability. And that is saying yes to the things you think that will make you look good. And Mm -hmm. I definitely see that a little bit in values type work. So for example, like you mentioned family, people think they should value family. It would be inappropriate to not value family. And so I have to have that little talk with people at the start that there's no judgment, that they can't like every word, and that I want them to be quite harsh in their decisions. But that's what I said when when I'm saying I help people sort through them. Because that's the reality is that most people want to say yes to everything and it's really going, no, which ones matter most? And Mm -hmm. that's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah, it's hard. You end up with a huge list of, "Ah, I don't know. So yeah, I bully my clients down to somewhere between a minimum of five and I like to go no more than eight, but I have had one client have 10 one time. (laughs) Greedy, so Uh greedy. (laughs) So... Were you happy to share? What what are your kind of top they're, values? Yeah, they're right on my wall right now. I have eight myself. So when I say one person had 10, it's like, oh, I have eight. <laughs> and that um, one person was me. <laughs> <laughs> mine, um, and some people like to rank order them. Other people don't. I kind of probably have two tiers when I look at mine. So my first tier, which are the top five for me, are family and love, well-being, spirituality, personal growth, and contribution. And then my second tier values are courage, excellence, and environment. I'm a little bit crunchy granola, like have a hybrid car and stuff. So (laughs) (laughs) recycle like crazy. 
That's interesting that you've got the two levels. So they're so they're your very very top ones, and then the you know just just below that. But I guess that that means that there's heaps of valleys that didn't make it in. But there for anyone so who's many. listening and confused, surely that means like you, it doesn't mean just because you know say family's not on your list, it doesn't mean you don't value it, right? It just means it's not your number one thing. Is that right? For sure, absolutely. It doesn't mean you don't value it, and. I encourage people to use their own language. So I have my clients come up with things like my people, and it might include friends and family or in a circle, and that's close relationships. So people also have different words and values are not set in stone, you know, like our values change over time. So family, having now got my own children, that's probably more of a priority than it was for me, you know, when I was 20 for example. Mm -hmm. So whether or not it would have made my list when I was 20, I'm not sure. But now that I'm a mom and I have two kids, that's something that's more of a priority for me than it used to be. So Mm. yeah, they mean different things. (laughs) They mean different things to different people. So I've got family and love that for some people means inner circle family. It means extended family to some people. It means friends to other people. So unlike personality values, really, it's all how you define it. Mm. And it's such a like it's such a personal thing because we all use language differently, and and love to you might mean something different than it means to me, you know. So it's I found it really interesting um, so that you said that you can you make up your own words for the values. It doesn't have to, you know. There's not like a list of that's a value. This is not a value. Is that what you would say? Yes, absolutely. And I massively encourage my clients to make up their own words. Mm. So like I laugh because psychology and one thing I didn't know about psychology is actually very scientific so I typically do a personality questionnaire at the start of a lot of my programs for the first session and then I do value second I'm like okay so we're doing the science first and then this is not scientific this is purely about you and um, deep diving so I go from one extreme to the other that's cool the both approaches that's the best um, so that, that family thing made me think of two different directions I want to go in. So I'm going to try and do both separately. So the first thing is I just thought, thought of, can your personality and or values change over your life? Yes, to both of those. So some personality traits have more movement in them than others. But yes, absolutely, you can move all of your personality traits and you can um, – I would say within a band. So it's not like you're going to go from highly introverted to highly extroverted, but you have a natural preference or way of acting, but it also doesn't mean that you can't act extroverted or that you can't behave in an extroverted manner, for example, when it's required of you. So yes, absolutely. Your values and personality can both change. In terms of values, there's definitely movement over our lifetimes and I encourage people to revisit their values like every five years and see if there has been things that changed. So for example, courage at the moment, I think is a value that uh, rings true to me, which may not always be there, but I feel like it's something that is really important to me in my life at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that might, that could change. Okay. So that's good to know. And Whereas so, for me, contribution is something that's probably a little bit more stable over time. That'll, that'll kind of keep, keep going yeah. through your it's life. It's going to keep. <laughs> I'm going to keep that one. <laughs> so because sure. obviously sometimes, especially with personality traits, like I know when I was a few years ago, even before I did personal development, I would say I have some personality traits that I very much do not like and they don't serve me very well. I'm sure there's a positive side, but I'm not sure what it is. So is it like when you're, when you're doing personal development, 
is it like you're aiming to change some of those personality traits or or can like can you is it possible that you'd change it a bit but if you're stressed or tired you'd still go back to that initial personality trait it's a really good point actually so first of all i want to say that your the traits that you that frustrate you there is positives to every single personality trait and there is a potential downside to every single personality trait it's like two sides of the same knife so whatever is frustrating you about your personality if we could talk about it more, which we don't need to do now, I will tell you what the positives are of it (laughs) so that you can perhaps be aware of the good that comes with it. You will probably always, yes, you can function in a different way. So yes, you can change your behavior. And one of the keys to doing that is self-awareness, which is why personality testing helps on being aware of your own natural personality propensities. So the first step is definitely being aware. And then obviously, if you have some tactics to override your natural functioning. So for example, I'm actually quite socially restrained or quite shy in certain situations, or pretty much all situations on first meeting. And I can circumvent that natural tendency by being really aware that I have it. So again, if you are unconsciously falling into the frustrating parts of your personality, they're much harder to do something about. But when I want to be more outgoing, for example, with say like Amy Cuddy's work, if you've ever watched her TED talk, I make sure that I'm not crossing my arms in a situation that I'm feeling really shy or uncomfortable in. I make sure I try and have open body language and I force myself to make the first introduction to people. So to say hi to new people. So that's all very intentional behavior that is overriding my natural traits or natural ways of wanting to function. Your behavior doesn't have to be always in line with your natural personality trait, but you're right on. When you're stressed, when you're overwhelmed, we tend to go back into more of that unconscious functioning and we tend to start reacting again more from our natural traits than from the behavior we desire. So it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like anyone when you're tired you just, it's its harder because when we're functioning outside of our natural traits, it takes more effort for us. So like I say to people when I'm looking at their jobs and their personality, I've honestly seen in my clients in history that it takes about 18 months to two years. If a person is in a job that is in direct contradiction to most of their personality traits, they'll be able to do it for about 18 months to two years before they are just over it completely and utterly over it and that's because it's a lot harder to function constantly outside our natural traits that is super interesting so would you sometimes help people to redirect their focus so that they might even make a career change so that they're living more in alignment with their personality traits or strengths I definitely do that that's something I do do in my work for sure and also just tweaking the roles they already have So I'm not a big believer in jump and the net will catch you, like just make crazy decisions in your life. Like that's not my natural personality. And so I certainly don't coach that way either. Mm -hmm. And so I will help them look for the ways that they can foster and develop the needs in their personality that aren't being taken care of. And whether that's in their role and tweaking it or starting something on the side or looking to change careers, then for sure, I do all of the above. Interesting. And is that, I meant to ask you this earlier on actually, is is that part of the reason why you've 
move towards more coaching and executive coaching and away from the clinical psych type stuff? So for me, in terms of my background, I was in corporate consulting and I loved that. For me, it was a natural combination of events that really led to me starting my own business and doing coaching. For example, though, one of my personality traits that allows me to do what I do and be like a little work from home by myself is I'm incredibly self-sufficient. So my natural style is I love working by myself on projects. I'm a bit of a control freak. It was something I had to be aware of when I worked in corporate consulting and and led a team of people because my natural style is to potentially kind of just put my head down and own something and run with it when, say, a corporate environment requires you to be often in group decision-making situations or to bounce ideas off others, which sometimes I find frustrating because I just want to move ahead and run with it. My personality lines up well now with what I do, but it wasn't necessarily the reason I moved towards being a coach out by myself yeah it's kind of like what you were saying before where it's you could uh, get around that personality trait but it's much more effortful I'm assuming for you to be in group situations I find the same because I'm a control freak and working for yourself is more easeful would you say I mean it's definitely not easeful so for sure (laughs) I was talking about this with a client the other day who also profiled as really self-sufficient And I was like, look, when I talk about my time in corporate, the thing I probably found most frustrating was like, you know, those two hour long meetings where you're like, what are we even talking about? And we are making no decisions. And now like, this is just a waste of my time. And that's a really typical self-sufficient type response is that they don't see the benefit and just kind of shooting the shit for lack of a better way to put it. And the learnings that you can get from just kind of bouncing ideas off others. So yeah. That's something that I think is pretty cliche of my behavior. So that's what I found most frustrating. So everything else was pretty good. I worked in a small enough team, but I probably wouldn't have liked a huge corporate where I had to do heaps of those meetings. Yeah, and like for a very long period of time. This sort of brings me to something that a friend of mine was talking about. Like if you understand your personality traits really well and you start to kind of aim your life and your career in a way that suits them, is there a risk that you might stop? growing a bit because like I feel like I've done it for myself for example just making taking the path of least resistance and going in ways that it really suits my personality traits but perhaps that means I'm not necessarily being triggered as much as I used to be and therefore don't have opportunities to grow do you know what I mean for sure and I think this comes down to some of the positive psychology theory as well that we are our most effective when we're playing to our strengths and that if we can really focus our energy into continuing to develop our strengths rather than try and fix every weakness, we actually end up being happier humans. So I don't think it's a bad thing and I don't think it necessarily leads to you becoming complacent. I think it's a separate thing. So what I think leads to that kind of stopping the personal growth is probably just Well, if you're comfortable, like someone said to me the other day, and I thought it was so good. I think it was in one of my last podcast interviews with Susie Moore. She said, on the way to success, there are many comfortable parking spots. And (laughs) she was talking about how most of the population live comfortable lives. So I think in terms of getting comfortable, I think it's just really a call to step up and challenge yourself again and go, what is the next challenge? And so coming back to me, one of my values I mentioned there very quickly was personal growth. So for me, not growing becomes uncomfortable in and of itself. Yeah. So it eventually it'll wake you up. 
I love if, that. That's, a, that's if a you value product. it, if you value yeah, it, but if yes. you value comfort, then maybe that's the life for you. True. Right. So I guess it sort of it might just come down to that whole like that guilt that we sometimes feel when life is a little bit easy thinking, Oh no, but I should be struggling or something. You know, I shouldn't be playing too much of my strengths. Cause that's, you know, that's indulgent, too easy. right? Yeah. yeah. So indulgent to like not be stressed. <laughs> and the other thing I would say is I think there's seasons in all of our lives and sometimes it's seasons for growth. Sometimes there's seasons for rest. Sometimes there there's always a different season and you can't be in intense growth mode all the time everybody needs a winter everybody needs a hibernation or a a slow down period for a little bit before they can really step up to that growth again yes I love that I've been trying to learn to do that because probably you found the same like as a control freak overachiever you forget to do the 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 winter phase where you just do nothing and like no leaves no new leaves come and you just sort of sit and grow some roots right yeah no I'm not you find that you skip that phase I'm not good at it at all which is why (laughs) self-care like in terms of my hardest lessons to learn it's always self-care because I just want to go full tilt all the time and then I get tired and I start getting run down and burned out and I'm like oh I need to slow down which just doesn't come naturally to me Mm-hmm. So you wait to the self care till it's like more like self emergency care. Exactly. I have to well, keep I need to like now. Yeah, I have to keep nurturing and self care like front of mind all the time. It just does not come naturally for me, which is just ridiculous when it's like what I study, what I know. I know the benefit of it, and it still doesn't come naturally. Do you find that as a? Um, do you find that particularly common among the people that you work with? The that you know not really looking after themselves kind of a thing. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a common thread. I think there's certain types of people that are really bad at it, like the giving types. You know, the I, I used to be a people pleaser, which I have let go of, I think. But there are a lot of traits that kind of go with my nature. One of them is a control freak, but it's also I have a very giving nature, so I can overgive. So I do see that self-care and nurturing is often an issue for the people who overgive but forget to mm-hmm. give to themselves. But I wouldn't say it's a issue across the board. It's often an issue in people's phases of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, is it something you struggle with too, Andrea? I'm just wondering. No, I'm just really wondering because I a lot of my clients uh, feel that way. I definitely struggle with it, and yeah, I guess I do tend to work with a very set kind of set of personality traits. Quite right, you're probably more type. Them. You're probably more type A overachievers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I guess I see that quite commonly. So I've started to feel like maybe everyone struggles with this. So I was just wondering if you have the same. No, I wouldn't say that's interesting. I I think it's also associated with that drive. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And maybe as women as well, there's always a a weird thing about giving to everyone except yourself. Yeah. We were strangely taught that I think in our programming is feminine. Mm, indeed now this sort of brings me back to the question I was going to sort of branch off to before in terms of family and values um was it with your so you've got a couple of children now do you have two children yeah I have a five-year-old and a four-year-old I have two boys far too close to age (laughs) I was just wondering if you could share a bit about um what they've taught you because I'm sure it's a whole new self-development journey Oh my gosh. So there's probably a bunch of you out there that I barely talk about my kids because I feel like I am so far from an expert on parenting that like I shouldn't say anything about it. (laughs) So 
What have they taught me? They have taught me that patience is still something I need to work on. Um, (laughs) They have taught me to slow down and that joy can be found in the moments. What else have they taught me? So interesting. I wrote an article about it, actually. I'll just share that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was published on, oh, yeah, I've had a couple of articles published around what my kids have taught me. You know, they're constantly teaching teaching me patience. I think that's the biggest lesson just in terms of like they get frustrated at me because this this is really showing into my personality, right? So I'm always like, fast game's a good game whenever we're trying to get into the car <laughs> or anything. So they're constantly making me slow down, which is just, um, they're like, my son said to me today, he goes, no, mom, a slow game's a good game as we were just <laughs> crawling our way into the car to try and get to the post shop in the lead up to Christmas. Um, That's the best. Yep, slow down. Mum needs to slow down. So, yeah, patience and slowing down, I think, is what my kids have taught me more than anything or continue to try and teach me, I should say. Interesting. Yeah, I just sort of – it's probably partly a selfish question of, like, as a control freak, I'm sure it's quite stressful to have these little – little humans come into your life and mess up all the control and all, all that sort of stuff. I would say that before I had children, so in terms of being a control freak, I, again, there's elements I have of my personality that control freakish. Like I'm, I'm messy and stuff, so I'm not a control freak in that respect. But I thought that I would be able to influence their behavior way more than I can. You know, I was like, my kids are going to eat this and my children are going to do this and my children will never be those whiny children. Like, oh my gosh, they come (laughs) with their own little set of stuff and both my kids are so different. And yeah, I've been shocked. So yeah, I feel I don't talk about my kids a lot because I really don't think I have any advice on how to parent to give to anyone else. But I just think, I mean, because I have so many clients who are mums as well, and they're so hard on themselves always. And I just think it's really valuable to just talk about your experience, even if you're like, this is not good advice. Do not follow this. You know, I just it, I really value that honest conversation around having kids and what how it changes your life. I think pretty much every mom out there, I said, mom, can you believe that? I live in America. Oh. Every mom, <laughs> I think every mom thinks they suck at some time, if not all the time. And... Yeah. Yeah, like Pinterest doesn't make you feel any better about yourself, I promise you. When you go in there and you see all those crafty mums, I'm, I, I have none of that, none of those bones in my body. So that's interesting. So even knowing personality types and all these kinds of ways to influence people still doesn't work on the kids. So just just right. so the rest of us people can know, it's still not going to work. And that's, when you need to, and that's when you need to meditate, Mama, so that you don't immediately respond. So you have that little bit of a gap between your immediate <laughs> response because a kid can suck you into their drama super fast. And then you realize I often try and reason with my children when I realize there's nothing reasonable to reason with them about. <laughs> <laughs> So you're just accidentally reasoning and then you're like, oh, fine. You get totally sucked into a discussion, which they're just going to wind their way through. It's like, oh, man, sucked in again. (laughs) That's so funny. So basically what you're saying is none of us are safe if someone who really understands personality traits can't get around it. The rest of us are screwed. Just we're all doing the best we can. And that's what I say to my (laughs) clients when they've had bad experiences with their parents too is I'm like, do you believe that your mother or father was doing the best they could with what they had at the time? And most people will say yes to that. And that's all I'm doing with my kids, the best I can with what I have. 
That's awesome. Yeah, because it's so common to be like, I should be better at this and, and just put it all on yourself. We're really, and same with your parents. Really, it's just, we're just doing our best. Most of us are just always doing the best we can with what we have. Mm. I listened to a podcast like last week, I think it was with Ellen Langer, and she said something along the lines of no one does stuff that doesn't make sense from their perspective. And I thought that was really, really helpful because it's true. It's kind of coming back to exactly what you said at the start. Everyone always has reasons for doing what they're doing. So if you're going to be black and white and be like, no, I do not like what you're doing, you're going to miss the point that they actually have a perspective that's very different and they're making, you know, doing certain behavior for a reason, even if it seems mad. <laughs> and I suppose your kids are the same. They right. Have a reason. Yeah. don't know what. <laughs> and often it is mad because they don't have a lot of reasoning capability when they're really little. <laughs> No, they've just got a little emotional brain doing yeah. its thing. They do. No, no if, rational responses. <laughs> if I keep whining, there is a chance I will get what I want. I want an ice cream. Right. Super and, interesting. And oh, thank you for sharing that. And the problem Tell is me. that that first time that you give in because you just want the whining to stop, they're like, I just have to whine harder and she'll do it again next time. <laughs> oh. I think we learned that in like Psych 109. I know, if right? you just mess up the, the positive reinforcement training or the negative reinforcement, just mess it up once you start back yep. years ago and you just have to start the process all again. But, you know, it's so tempting in that moment to give them the ice cream and then you oh, screw yourself forever more. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Oh, I'm scared of even becoming a parent for that reason. <laughs> I pretty much just survey all my mates to find out like how bad it is. And it, and it seems hard. So I'll just I'll wait, wait a bit. See, I think naivety so, was bliss for me. I didn't know too much before I leapt in. Just sleep oh, in. Oh, really? Just sleep in, Andrea. Don't think about it. <laughs> I've, got, I've done too much research. I don't think it's possible anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I have one more uh, question, which is um, quite a massive one, but could just be short. Um, what do you think is the point of life, Kate? Oh my gosh, what do, I, <laughs> what do I think is the point of life? I personally think, wow, I could go on about this. Like, I could just muse on this for days. Full podcast episode. I think that we're all kind of here to learn our lessons, to develop as individuals and to rise up into our greater selves. So for me, and I don't think it needs to be looked at this way, but for me, I kind of see that as soul lessons. I do believe that we just will keep getting a lesson, show up in different ways until we learn it. And that's what I think is the purpose of life. I really think we're in some form of like, soul school if you like and that we're all here learning and growing it's all about growth I love it it's all about growth like all the plants except they just don't have the um personality trait tools that you have so we're talking <laughs> about plants I literally this is just a random aside but I um you know Judy Dench Dame Judy Dench mm -hmm. apparently she has this new documentary coming out with the BBC about the secret lives of plants and how they actually all have these insane communication things going on with each other Whoa, oh my god I know this this is going to be a new niche where you uh put your personality tools towards your ferns right and I have to admit <laughs> well because there's all that like you know research about if you talk to your plants it's happier and stuff and you'll see like if you're in the if you look at any of the health coaches they're all talking to like uh things of rice and saying like bad things to that one right did you learn that in health coaching when you did it <laughs> what <laughs> are you talking about that water experiment where you say love to the yes. water and it forms oh, different ice crystals the oh, japanese research kind of but but i've seen people doing it to like apples and you know like i gave this apple love and it and it didn't rot and then this apple did rot because i just gave it hate oh. or whatever 
I have to admit, I have like one plant that's doing really well in my office at the moment. So I'm now, yeah, maybe that's my next career fascination with plants. <laughs> Analyzing plants' personalities. <laughs> I'm looking out my window and there's a bunch of dead plants. I'm like, damn it, I should pet them more. Just Sorry. send them like love eyes. Just give them some love eyes. <laughs> I don't, I'm not super good at the love eyes. It's part of my personality trait. It doesn't come naturally to me to be compassionate. So <laughs> that's why they're suffering. Yeah. Plants, awesome. Eh? Well, thank you so much for answering my questions so authentically. I've just been wanting to ask you these things for ages. <laughs> I was on your podcast and I was like, I want to ask questions back. This is rubbish. Well, I hope you found it interesting. And I don't know if I really cleared up anything or just probably made you more confused. No, totally. I loved everything you said. I, I, I was trying to like write some notes so I can remember some stuff. And I can <laughs> just listen back again, can't I? <laughs> probably can. It's been such a joy to host this podcast this year. I appreciate you all so much for listening. And I'm really excited about what 2018 has in store. I'm a big believer in the fresh energy of a new year and can't wait to continue this conversation next year. Keep thriving and I'll see you next week.